O Lord our God, the heathen take counsel together. They conspire against thee and thine anointed, and they rage against thy law. Grant, O Lord, that as we face the wrath of humanistic status man, we do so always in the confidence of thy government and power, and that through Christ we become more than conquerors as we face the foe. We pray, our Father, for thy guiding, blessing, and delivering hand upon us in this battle. Overthrow the powers of darkness. Make us again a free people in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our scripture this morning is from the fourth chapter of the prophet Hosea, verses 1 through 3. Our subject, judgment. Hosea 4, verses 1 through 3. And our subject, judgment. Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel, for the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying, and killing and stealing, and committing adultery, they break out, and blood toucheth blood. Therefore shall the land mourn, and every one that dwelleth therein shall languish, with the beasts of the field, and with the fowls of heaven. Yea, the fishes of the sea also shall be taken away. We are here told that God has a lawsuit, a controversy in English here, with the inhabitants of the land, because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. Then we have a delineation of the kind of crime that takes place, and the third verse is the land itself shall feel the effect of the judgment. One of the constant points made in Scripture is that like people, like priests, like priests, like people, like the prince, so the people. In other words, that a nation does have some kind of unity. It moves either into godliness or it moves into ungodliness. So that what there is in the faith of the people will be manifest in their everyday life. So that the indictment of a nation is an indictment of all within it. There cannot be crime on a large scale unless there is corruption in the hearts of those in high places, in rulers, in judges, and civil officials and religious officials of all kinds. Therefore, God judges the land, the earth. The word earth appears with very great frequency in the Bible, and it has interesting connotations. The name Adam means earth. The earth often refers to a locality such as Palestine, 
For example, in Luke 23, verse 44, with regard to the crucifixion, we read, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Whereas in Matthew 27:45, in the same passage, it says, over all the land until the ninth hour. The earth can refer to the Bible as a planet or to a specific territory, sometimes a very limited one. The Bible tells us that the earth is the Lord's and that the fertility of the earth responds to man's relationship to God so that we have, as we saw previously, the unity of rulers and people and the land so that there is a common character to them all. Man's sin infects nature also because God has so ordained it. Moreover, we are told that when men hearken diligently unto God's commandments, they will be given rain, good grass, and fertility. But when they turn aside and serve other gods and worship them, then the Lord's wrath, as in Deuteronomy 11:13 to 17, will be kindled upon you. And the results will be no rain, the land shall not yield her fruit, and God will cause them to perish. Now, as man brings the earth under dominion, he glorifies God and he makes the earth a part of that kingdom. But where sin prevails, that land goes downhill and becomes the habitation no longer of man, but of destructive beasts. Isaiah said concerning Babylon that it would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. He declared that because the earth had been polluted by them, they would be polluted and destroyed. The same kind of prediction is made with regard to Israel, but with a promise of restoration. True faith thus has great consequences. When men believe in God, when God is their king, we are told that the results are dramatic. But when, as in Judges, we are told that every man did that which was right in his own eyes, this too has repercussions. As Dr. Hillers has noted, and I quote, Every man did what was right in his own eyes, had as a corollary, These words which I command you today shall be before your eyes, and you shall teach them diligently unto your sons. Now, Hillers goes on to make a very important point. He says that the land the chosen people had was picked for by God. They held the land as a direct fief from the Lord, and therefore it was inalienable. It was an act of impiety to sell what was God's blessing. Now, with the Great Commission in the New Testament era, we are no longer tied to any particular piece of land, but the whole earth is given in the Great Commission, and we are to bring it all under the dominion of the Lord, and through godly inheritance to give it only to the faithful seed, not to the ungodly. 
The sad fact is that very few people in our culture have a godly sense of possession of land. The Mennonites, the Amish, and the Hutterites do. They feel that ownership of land is a religious thing, a principle. And therefore, their idea is not to do away with land, but to increase their holdings and to sell no land except to someone who is godly, because the earth must be brought into godly dominion. The Huderites in particular are very strong on this premise, and from a small handful in the Dakotas, they are now moving out across the Dakotas into Canada and into neighboring states and taking more and more as they expand. Now, one of the things that we need to recognize further in respect to the land is the usage in Scripture of the Hebrew verb, know. It has a particular meaning that we do not have in English. We are told, for example, that Adam knew Eve, his wife. It has reference to sexual relationships. It also has reference to any kind of close tie, so that when God says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for your iniquities. God is saying, I established a special relationship with you, and therefore my judgment upon you differs from that upon all others. Hence, when God says he knows the people, when he comes to know them in Christ and to make them his own, his judgment upon them is all the more severe. We can therefore count on the fact that, because judgment, we are told in the New Testament, begins at the house of God. Those countries which have been godly and have departed, will have a much more severe judgment than those who never knew the Lord. To know the Lord means, from the human side, to use the earth, God's domain in his service. God having known us and having passed over others to bless us as a people, must expect according to his word. Now, the Bible speaks of wealth as a legitimate goal when it is used to establish and further God's covenant and its dominion mandate. Deuteronomy 18, or 8, verse 18 in chapter 8 declares, But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth that he may establish his covenant which he sware unto thy fathers as it is this day. It is a sin. We are also told in that same passage to believe, my power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. God blesses wealth when it is godly wealth, when it is used to his glory. God's covenant requires us to make full use of the land of our abilities, of our wealth, and to live a good life in terms of his calling. 
But we are told by God in speaking through Jeremiah that he judges those who make a purely selfish humanistic use of their wealth. In Jeremiah 22, verses 13 through 17, we read, Woe unto him that buildeth his house by unrighteousness or injustice, and his chambers by wrong, that useth his neighbor's service without wages, and giveth him not for his work. But saith, I will build me a wide house and large chambers, and cutteth them out windows, and it is sealed with cedar and painted with vermilion. Shalt thou reign because thou closest thyself in cedar? Did not thy father eat and drink and do judgment and justice, and then it was well with him? He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well with him. Was not this to know me, saith the Lord? But thine eyes and thine heart are not but for thy covetousness, and for to shed innocent blood, and for oppression and for violence to do it. To know God, Jeremiah's prophecy makes clear, is to do justice and to obey God's covenant law. When men disobey God, he has a controversy, literally a lawsuit against them, and the land participates in that judgment. Hosea tells us in the fourth chapter as does Micah in the sixth chapter and Isaiah in his first chapter, that God has a lawsuit against all people, first of all, who lack godly knowledge. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. God does not bless the people who go to him for fire and life insurance only. He requires them to know him to know him in the sense of knowing his word. Second, these indictments, these lawsuits that God files through the prophets declare that he requires justice and he punishes those who despise his law. Micah 6.11 reads, You will eat, but you will not be satisfied. Inside you there will still be hunger. You will put away, but you will not save, and what you do save I will give to the sword. Then third, the Lord requires loyalty, faithfulness, so that he requires us to be faithful to him even as he is faithful to us. And his faithfulness in Christ was unto death. Fourth, he requires that we walk humbly with him in full submission. And religious worship apart from this is meaningless. And so we are told in Isaiah 1, 16 and 17, Wash you, make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do well. Seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. Then it is very significant, fifth, that in the bill of indictment, in the lawsuit filed in Isaiah, the first chapter, inflation is listed prominently. Their silver had become dross. It had become counterfeit, baser metal. And then six, we are to forsake, Isaiah tells us in his indictment, the fear of men, the attitude of pleasing men, 
we are to please God. Until then, the judgment of God is upon a people and upon the land. Now, we began by calling attention to the fact that the name of Adam means earth. This is one of the first facts which the Bible stresses. That man was formed out of the dust of the earth, that is, out of the top soil. Moreover, we are told very early in Genesis, Dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Man is earthbound. In this space age, of course, man likes to think that he has transcended the limitations of the earth. But man is still earthbound. This has implications. It tells us, of course, that we need a theology of the land because man is earthbound. He is earth, dust which returns to dust. It means that man was created out of the earth for God's covenant purposes. Now, just as a potter creates vessels which cannot talk back to him and have no independent life from the potter, so again and again the Bible uses the imagery of the potter and the clay concerning man. Man is created in the image of God, but he is to see himself as a creation of God. And just as a potter creates a, clay, uh, a pot of clay for his purposes, so God creates us for his purposes. And we have no right to an independent life from him. The blueprint for our created life is God's law. Gilman has written in a totally different context, but his words are very telling, and so I use them. The law is what is, what truly exists and happens, what, what cannot be reduced to our opinions and our slack. Pedagogy is the practice of creating screens to mask the law from our sight in formal ways, through language and through terminology, unquote. The law is the way of life, very simply. God tells us that independence of him spells death. But to fulfill his purposes, Bell's life. Then further, we must remember a point which our Amos Master very tellingly makes again and again. The earth is the only form of renewable wealth. All kinds of things come out of the earth. Man is totally dependent on the earth for minerals, for materials, but the earth and the production of food is even more basic. And the earth can be renewed. Its fertility can be increased. So that God has given us a key to the future. A tremendous form of renewable wealth. As we look over the world, we can see areas where this has been done. Certainly, the plains today are dramatically more 
productive than they were in the day of the buffalo. Certainly vast portions of the earth have increased their fertility. The Netherlands was largely reclaimed from the sea and made rich and productive. Many, many parts of France, rich farmland now, witness to what reclamation of desert areas and marshy areas can lead to. The key to renewing the earth and increasing its potentiality is work, covenant-directed forms of work. On the other hand, work apart from God, work without a respect for God's creation, leads to destruction. And there are many parts of the earth that have become desert which were once rich and fertile. Babylon, of course, is a classic example. As a result, the theology of land points directly to a very important subject which, beginning next week, we shall consider for some weeks. A theology of work. Work takes many forms. Work has very differing characters. We can point to portions of the earth where men have labored like slaves over the centuries, and they are no better for it, and the earth is no better. In fact, has gone downhill. We can point also to portions of the earth like Egypt, which has been rated together with the San Joaquin Valley as one of the two most fertile areas of this planet. And yet the poverty there is staggering. Work in itself will not alter man's life. It takes covenant work, godly work. And thus, from a theology of the land, we must of necessity, move on now, beginning next week, to a consideration of the theology of work. Are there any questions now? Yes. More of an observation. The uh, Ukraine was once a great exporter of wheat. And the, uh, many of the countries of South Africa, uh, of uh, the African continent, rather, exported food. Yes. China, at one time, was a very wealthy agricultural country. Uh, the Central Europe was another very wealthy area. All of these areas turned atheistic or pagan, and all of them are facing famine. Yeah. It seems to me a pretty remarkable illustration of your topic. Yes. There is a very interesting development since the murder of Larry McDonald and the shooting of the 007. Many people felt the thing to do was to stop the halt of technology and of grain to the Soviet Union, which our uh, great white fathers in Washington refused to do. Now the line is, and the sad fact is that the Farm Journal is echoing it. 
that they really don't need our grain. They are producing more grain than we are and are rolling in grain. They're simply buying it to feed to their cattle. Their food production is so great. And the other line is that their steel production far exceeds ours. So, what they buy from us is a bonus to us. We're the one who profits by any sales to them. Because our poor farmers and our poor manufacturers make some money. So, the picture now that is being painted of the Soviet Union is of a very highly successful a successful country that has no needs and is doing us a favor by buying our wheat and our technology. Which means, of course, they are simply taking the Soviet statistics which are fraudulent and are using them deliberately. Any other questions or comments? Yes. I wonder if you could comment on the um, the term the land mourns or the land mourneth. Uh, seems that there's more meaning to that than would be readily uh, first thought of by first reading. Yes. The expression, as in Hosea 4.3, Therefore shall the land mourn, and everyone that dwelleth therein shall languish, with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven. Yea, the fishes of the sea also shall be taken away. The latter half of the verse illustrates what it means for the land to mourn. The people are going to be in misery because they are going to be in want. And the beasts also will face a shortage of food and will perish. And so too the fowls of heaven and even the fish of the sea will be affected by what happens. So, it's going to be grief for them all. That's the meaning. In other words, the land mourning means the people, the fowl, the beasts, the fish, all are going to be affected. Any other questions or comments? Yes. Well, the fact that we speak of land as a renewable resource, and maybe this was McMaster's comment, is that because we're able to take you take or waste the uh, continual energy that comes from the sun through the agricultural process? Yes, the energy comes from the sun and you thereby have an interdependence there. Uh, the ultimate interdependence is upon God, of course. But the energy of the sun makes possible the fertility of the land together with the rain, man's work, what man does to improve the soil, and so on. Let me say there's a great deal of significance to the fact that McMaster does stress this aspect so heavily. Most economists and market uh, analysts are thinking in terms of the marketplace, which is necessary, and they forget the basic God-given reality in other words, if you concentrate exclusively on the area of man's activity without considering the given, your thinking becomes ruthless. Any other questions or comments?
Well, if not, let us conclude with prayer. O Lord our God, the land mourns the world over. For the judgment of thy law is upon us. And step by step the day of reckoning draws near. Give us grace and strength, therefore, to bring men and nations back again into thy covenant, into faithfulness to thee, to be free of sin and death and alive in Christ, and strong by thy grace in the face of all hostility enmity and evil. We thank Thee, our Father, that Thou art at work in judgment and in salvation, and that this is the day of Thy grace as well as of Thy judgment. And we look unto Thee, O Lord, that by Thy grace and mercy we may be again made strong in Thee that the forces of humanistic statism may be confounded and destroyed, and thy kingdom, thy righteousness shine like the noonday sun. Guide us, bless us, and prosper us in thy service, and keep us ever strong in faith and in hope. In Jesus' name, Amen.